Hello and welcome to Fuse, the global podcast from the PRCA, where we explore the evolving landscape of global communications. We bring together leaders from public relations, politics, business, academia, and media to spark new ideas and ignite innovation. My name's Dan Gold, and on today's episode, we have Mark McGregor, and we're going to be delving into power, politics, and public affairs. Mark currently serves as Managing Director at Penta, where he oversees public affairs in the United Kingdom. He is responsible for advising a wide range of organizations about how to best tackle reputational, political, and regulatory issues. He specializes in advising clients with significant challenges in a wide range of sectors and possesses 30 years of relevant experience. He was a former CEO of the Conservative Party, Deputy Director of Policy Exchange, and has worked in a range of agencies, including one he founded in the late 1980s and has been the Director of Corporate Affairs at various multinationals. Mark, welcome to Fuse. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. And I think we should delve into this from the from the point of when you first get up in the morning and you you either have the broadsheets delivered or you know you look at an app or it's a podcast or it's the news on the television on the radio how how do you decide which channels you like to consume and what's the first thing you reach for in the morning it's a really good question because i think in in that question what you see is how habits have changed I and mean, if you go back 20 years ago i would have turned on the radio uh, probably listened to Radio 4, Radio 5 Live. Um, and I almost certainly have had a paper delivered. Um, actually, my paper of choice is The Times. And that would have been the way in which, you know, you would have got your initial hit of news. And, and that has changed significantly. And social media, Twitter in particular, has made it much easier not just to consume, as you said, your kind of paper of choice, but uh, to enable you to follow lots of different commentators, lots of different organisations. Um, and so actually your your news sources come, uh, there are many very different sources now. Um, and then as, as you touched on at the end, um, it isn't just social media, newspapers, news websites. Actually podcasts are an incredibly important way that, um, and there's really been a development over the last couple of years, incredibly important way that you acquire information and understanding, um, and actually, because they one of the things that they do is they grow into they go into issues with much greater depth, and I think that's one of the things that you know you like to go. So whether you're travelling into work by car or by train, uh, or you're just going for a walk prior to starting, it actually gives you an opportunity to take a slight step back and and listen to a podcast about whether it's economics or politics in greater detail. So it's one of the things I I always try and do is make sure I have at least kind of one podcast that you're listening to every day because it does it does sort of take you away from the uh the the kind of flow of um, news which itself can be sometimes overwhelming i don't know if you find the same uh, as i do your your experience and your journey has been different to mine as to the next person listening as to the next person listening but what I have found in conversations here on Fuse and with people in the physical and quote-unquote real world is that the the uh, drip 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 of 24-hour news is is you know non-stop and it's almost wearing 
where taking a break and looking at listening to a podcast or watching a, a video analysis of a topic where it does go into that deeper dive gives you an opportunity to actually pause for yourself and go am i just consuming noise and it's next story next story next story or or am i evaluating what i'm taking from this uh, from your perspective and, and your journey having consumed news over over many years and for a purpose which is not just as a consumer but also as someone who is analyzing the news seeing what the footprint is seeing what the tone of voice is towards various topics have you found that this democratization through different channels has given us the opportunity to step back and critically think about stories ourselves, not just by listening to podcasts, looking at that section of it, but going, okay, well, they're analyzing this. Do I need to actually look beyond the headlines? I think that's right. And I mean, there's two, two points I'd make. The first is the importance of avoiding confirmation bias. You hear something. In fact, that the, it, how social media works, it gives you, tends to give you information from sources that probably you agree with and one of the things that is incredibly important is that if you are following um, individual journalists or commentators or news sources that you make sure you're getting a proper representative sample of what the outside world um, thinks rather than just those sources that actually would tend to agree with you and that, that is actually very difficult to do unless you make a conscious effort that's the first point second is if one of our tasks as communications public affairs advisors is to ensure we are giving proper perspective to our clients, one of the jobs we also have is to ensure that we have that sense of what is and isn't important. It can be very, clients, particularly those in the news, can get a disproportionate view about the impact that that story has. If it matters to them, does it matter to the outside world? Uh, and one of the reasons why, for example, I'm, I'm, very interested in looking at data about how news stories land and whether they actually affect, for example, a client's reputation, is it does allow you to get a proper sense of that uh, perspective, proportionality, and um, where you're trying to advise clients about their response or how indeed they might proactively generate news coverage. And I think those are those are very important for those who are seeking to influence, particularly some kind of bigger companies where they may, can they trust their own judgment? You know, because they, my observation having worked for larger companies is they're often, they know a huge amount about themselves. Sometimes they know quite a lot about their industry. Though often you'd be surprised how little they understand about their direct competitors, but they don't really have much of a perspective of the outside world. So if you work in, say, for a utility company, do they understand that actions you know, regulator actions taken by the government towards utilities is probably influenced by what they've done in technology, in, uh, in financial services. So, so in a way, you have to kind of put things in, in, in proportion and perspective for them. Because, and that's one of the reasons why I think agencies are so important, because you do have that wider perspective. So you do understand that if there's a direction of travel that government or governments are, are, are going down on a regulatory front, then it might well be they start with one sector, but actually they're likely to adopt the same approach in other sectors. And that's one of the areas where I think in consuming news, you have to try and find a way of understanding how important this is 
and whether this is something where you do need to take some important steps with your clients or they're actually doing nothing is, is sometimes better. I'd like to get on to media scanning with AI shortly if we can, because I think this, that feeds into that very nicely. But what I'd like to do is is to take you back to your 27-year-old self at that point where you're in you know, the PR and public affairs space, but you decide to go out on your own. And maybe we take it to even before that, what, what, what attracted you to this space in the first place? I'd, I'd love to tell you that I had some plan to always work in public relations or public affairs, but other than being interested in current affairs and studying history at university, I, I had no particular interest. I arrived at a job by accident. I don't think I even had an interview. It was just through a contact. They offered me a role. I thought, this sounds like something I might want to do. No understanding of what, what the job involved. And then about two years later, I set up my own company with a, with a colleague. Uh, and uh, we, we, we actually, there was a large client we were working for um, with my original agency. And they wanted the skills we had and not the skills that the agency I was working at had. So we uh, went out by ourselves with that sort of starter uh, a company uh, that was supposed to be a trade association that we were working with and at the time I, I actually just genuinely thought well this would be something I'll do for a couple of years and then and I can call it call it hold and go do a proper job um, but like a lot of uh, those sorts of intentions it soon, soon became clear to me that there was something that the team that we assembled relatively small to start with could actually provide not just to that client but to many other organizations and we we were focused very much on B two B PR. We work for technology companies, accountancy firms. Which actually, interestingly enough, at the time, uh, those uh, accountancy firms had only just been had the restrictions lifted on them, so they could talk about themselves publicly at all. And again, not something I knew or understood anything about. But actually, we landed. We actually worked for KPMG, but we actually landed a number of firms in that sector. And so, in a way, they were taking their first steps towards understanding how best to communicate with the outside world. And um, I guess we played a a role in helping them uh, to do that. Um, But there wasn't a grand plan. It was simply, we set up the company, we signed some clients, and then 15 years later, I sold sold the business. It was a three million pound business. We actually had a conference company we'd set up alongside it. So it was a very, it was a fascinating journey, but and I, sometimes I hear people talking about they've got a you know business plan to grow from next one, and I'm sure that works for some people. But for me, it was always um, you work for clients. If you win some new business, you can bring in some new talented people, and hopefully you can expand on that basis. And if you can deliver good results, it's word of mouth mostly that that actually delivered most of our of our new business. Do you think that there's a lesson to be learned from the perspective? Of, I mean, we would. Probably, I don't know necessarily would have referred to it back then in this way, but now we would say, you know, you've got to be agile, you've got to be, you know, flexible, you've got to be willing to pivot, you've got to, you know, all the buzzwords that basically mean just doing the same thing that you would have done back then. But now they've got words and shapes around them. Do you think that um, looking back in the 90s to, to you know, around the time now in, in forming an organisation, the the base principle of building a business plan and structuring it and say here are our metrics and by this point this is this milestone this milestone this milestone 
Do you think that inflexibility leads to failure if people are so rigid and they don't just go, do you know what? We win a piece of work, we'll scale. We lose a piece of work, we'll be agile. I think there's a lot in that. Um, and I think it can quite easy to have a business plan that doesn't actually fit reality. I mean, the key to me is what are you actually good at? And what are you good at in comparison with your competitors? Um, and can you actually stand up in front of clients and prospects and say, we believe we are the best at doing X? Um, because otherwise, you're just part of the background noise. You're just one of many companies offering a particular service. And when I, you know, if you go go read what companies say about themselves, um, from the biggest uh, comms providers to the smallest niche providers, most of them, the words on their website are almost exactly the same. Um, and I think that's a that's a real challenge. So actually finding out what you think you're good at and actually critically what you're better at than your competitors is incredibly important. And let me tell you a story. I, I said that we had set up a, a conference uh, division. Um, again, that wasn't a plan. Here's what actually happened. We had a, a, a law firm that we're working for. They asked us to organize a conference for them and we charged them a fee for that conference. But they took the financial risk on, on the event. But as And they were, it was a conference where you were charged to attend. And that conference was so successful and made them so much money, they decided that actually funded the whole of our PR budget for the next year. So we decided, well, the next time we're organizing a conference, why, why don't we take the risk and we take the, the profits? And on the back of that, we actually then, uh, over time, established a conference business um, where we took the whole of the risk. And that actually was the business that became the largest part of my previous company. There was no plan involved. There was no decision that we, we knew where we were going to get to at the end. So it was a degree of um, flexibility. But then once we saw that it was succeeding, that's when we decided we should definitely expand this into new areas. So we might have started off in, as it happens, that was a housing conference, but we soon rapidly moved on to utilities, financial services, postal services, airlines. And so actually, we, but we decided to gradually expand the company by adding different sectors where we could run events that we thought um, might be successful. But it wasn't a plan. It was simply we'd succeeded in one area, and not all of them worked, by the way. We succeeded in one area, but it allowed us, gave us the confidence to build the team um, and then to build the capability of actually de delivering those events successfully. Um, and that, that, to me, is a good example of we had flexibility, but also it was built on success. If something works, and clearly what we were doing was very different to the rest of the market, it also was aligned with some of the work we are doing on the comms side, then actually that is a good signal for you to say, well, that's the area we're going to invest in rather than some, you know, some plan that you might have written five or six years before where that conference division would never have appeared on it. Okay, we, we're talking on success, which is important, and, and then trying to repeat, the, repeat that model and hoping that that knowledge, the experience, the skills, the people that you've attracted have, have built that and then you can replicate it and scale. But what do you feel from the time of owning your own organization was the, and, and if you're comfortable with this question, because it wasn't in our previous questions, it's just one of the ways that these conversations go, but what was the biggest uh, failure or least successful thing that you learned best lesson from um, I think 
I, I would say that there we got to a stage where our, the agency and, as I said, this conference division were very successful. And I would say there was a point at which we should have decided to invest in bringing in more people to grow the business. What we essentially got to was a you know certain turnover. Uh, and I think there was a moment where we were doing very well in one particular sector. But in order to grow beyond that sector and that area of work, we did need to take a, and it comes back to the previous question, we did need to take a, a kind of strategic decision. Do we want to expand, for example, into healthcare? And how would we do that? There are obviously two routes. You can recruit people and grow it that way, or you can buy another agency. And I think there was a moment where we probably should have done that, and we didn't. And as a result, the agency uh, stayed at roughly the same uh, size uh, and uh, ability to win uh, business was restricted because we didn't, ha- we couldn't demonstrate, even if we thought we could do that work in some of those areas, we didn't have the, the case studies, we didn't have the team, and therefore actually our chances of winning business, because we couldn't demonstrate that we were better than the competition, was quite limited. And so I, th- I guess that would be my biggest regret in the kind of late 1990s we definitely had that opportunity to grow the business on that side but it would have taken a significant investment and one of the reasons being frank about it was that by that time as I sold my share in the business in the early 2000s uh, by that time I was already looking at getting involved in politics or standing for parliament and so in a way that was a kind of distraction away from simply delivering success for the business. I had something else that I thought I might want to do, getting elected. Um, And and therefore, in a way, I wasn't very likely to take big strategic uh, decisions because there's an element of work and and commitment you have to do if you want to do those things properly. And and then it's the priorities of, well, what do I actually want for me and for my life moving forward? So you're, you're... Arc at this point is you're at the crossroads. You've got this desire to get into that space to serve and to to represent. Um, you make the decision. I'm going to go for it. What were those next steps like? What was the conversation at home over the breakfast cereal on the day that you went? I'm going to do this. It, well, it wasn't a it wasn't a single moment. Um, it was I had actually been working. Strangely enough, I think I first canvassed my first house in the 1979 general election, even before I could vote. Um, And so I'd always been involved alongside my building my agency. I'd always been involved in, as it happens, um, the Conservative Party. Um, And therefore, I'd I'd actually stood uh, when I was a student for council elections. I had then worked in every general election, often for a particular member of parliament. So uh, who wanted to get re-elected, so in Scotland where I was at university, um, and then uh, with a, somebody who then became a cabinet minister, Francis Maud, in his seat in North Warwickshire. So I'd already been uh, helping run other people's election campaigns. So it wasn't a very significant step from helping others to deciding, well, perhaps I should put my name on the ballot paper too. And you go through that process, you garnered the support the the direction it took from them was um uh, you, you weren't successful in being elected but what was what was that point at which you were like well my heart is still in this i can still offer 
something was that the point at which the new door the next door opened for you yes so, so i didn't get as you said correctly the, the electors chose wisely not not to vote me in on the two elections i stood in 97 and 2001 but by that time i'd run my agency for 15 years um and uh, maybe uh, because i've been I went, for example, I went half time at work. So, so between 1999 and 2001, I was only working half time, half the salary. Um, and um, therefore, in a way, my head already been turned towards doing other things. And then in 2002, I was approached to become chief executive of the Conservative Party at a time of very low ebb um, for that, for the party. Blair you know, just secured his second, uh, second term. And I thought that I could actually make a difference uh, for the for the party, and that's why I decided to to accept that uh, role. Um, but as as a result, you you can't kind of ride two horses. You can't continue to pretend to run a PR company and also have another role. So it's at that point I I did sell my shares with some regret because it was a business I'd started um, and I built up successfully, and I was very fond of the kind of team that worked there, many of whom had been there for almost the whole of the journey, the people we actually sold the shares to were those who actually worked inside the company. Um, so in a way, it's quite an emotional wrench um, to do that. But I decided that that I was actually more, at that point, I was more interested in a kind of political career. Uh, and that's obviously when I, I joined the Conservative Party as chief executive at a time when 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 they were, you know, they, they were very small numbers in Parliament, 160 seats versus Labour's 400 odd. So it, it was a it was a bit of a lost cause. I think one of the things that I said you said in the introduction is I quite like challenging clients. Well, working for the Conservative Party then was a pretty challenging uh, moment for anybody. I think there's certainly times when you look at uh, political parties around the globe for those in a in a democracy, there are they use ebbs and flows, and there are times at which you think you know, this isn't a lost cause, we're going to give it time, we've got to really listen to the constituents, why are we not engaging with them, and and just see the needle move step by step by step, and, um, you know, the, the great honesty with the public is that they will let you know very quickly where they're absolutely at. So, in your time as Chief Exec, in the Conservative Party, what shape did that take? Because we get some very hands-on chief execs and we get some who are, here's the you know overall vision, make it happen. Where were you in that scale? Almost certainly in the former, uh, trying to actually drive change. And um, the party needed to change. Um, it had been rejected in two general elections, 97 and 2001. Uh, and when the public has spoken, you better take some notice. And if you think about current politics, um, that, that's the lesson Labour's learned, that they had to change significantly. They actually learned it in the 1990s under Tony Blair. But more recently, that's a lesson that Labour's learned, that you can't continue to try and sell the same message, the same policies and hope to have a different outcome. And that was certainly true of the Conservative Party then. And, and, and therefore, we, we needed to take a look at ourselves, what we stood for, um, the who we were, who we, how we presented in public. Um, and you know, just to give you one example, um, in the 2001 election, the Conservative Party had almost nothing to say about some pretty important issues, health, 
education, the environment, almost no visible policies. We did, we were talking about some things, immigration, uh, our relationship with the EU, but that was at the expense of talking about the things that probably mattered most to people. Um, and, and therefore, actually having a decision to go back and look at, well, the, the, these are the things that the public most care about, and actually having a crafted policy and understanding of how a conservative government might fix those things felt pretty important. And as with all these things, you will have, um, because you have elected members of parliament, you will have people who have very strong opinions about what you should say, the policies you should have, and actually bringing those people on board so they understood the scale of the problem facing the Conservative Party, and that if you didn't change, you would never win another election. Um, and that, that that was a that was part of the job, um, and it wasn't sim- It's not like a normal organisation where chief exec, new chief executive comes in. This is how we're going to do things. We'll get things done. We'll make these change changes, and they'll happen. When you have a political party, if you want to make changes, you have to bring people with you. You can't just assume that uh, MPs or activists or councillors are simply going to change what they've done or what they. You know, the kind of ideas they're, they're putting forward just because the person at the top, whether the leader, or in my case, the chief executive says so, you have to bring them along. They have to understand that this is, this is the approach which is most likely to deliver um, success. And success is measured, unlike a lot of, um, comp- I mean, when you look at small companies, there's got to be that pretty instant result. When you look at very large scaled companies and conglomerates you know increments can be very slow and stability is more of a key than that instant next win but with the election cycle with politics it's you know it's all out there it's all in the public domain and how many times have we read those broadsheets from the 90s or the you know the ipads of today and gone well, actually, behind closed doors, the conversation was this, and this is what they were saying externally. And the salaciousness of leaks, etc., is something that is incredibly powerful in the political realm. From from your perspective, um, communications, politics, public affairs, specifically, are there any really notable? big cons moments during your time as the chief exec at the Conservative Party? Um, not so much then, to be to be honest, because I was only there for uh, just over a, a year. And we there were some steps we took, which I think laid the groundwork for David Cameron when he came in a few years later. Um, in, for example, the selection of candidates to ensure that it, it, it was a, a more diverse um, group that looked like what Britain was rather than what it might have been in the 19th century. Um, uh, so I'm not sure there were significant moments, but the, but you know the, the thing about politics is that there are some individual moments that we can probably all remember um, that actually have changed the direction of our country or of the fate of a political party. And if you take, for example, the the selection of um, Tony, the election of Tony Blair as as both the Labour uh, leader and then as prime minister, uh, it's it, it, he did that because he changed the Labour Party, um, and 
that is not a having worked for the Conservative Party at an early stage of them changing. I know how difficult that can be. And, and as an observer of a successful, uh, successfully uh, changing, completely overhauling how Labour was seen, um, that that is a that is a model for the others to look at. Uh, actually, not just in politics, but in organisations. And one of the things that you, you kind of you, you you learn is how little how cons- well, two things. One, how consistent you have to be in everything you do in order to persuade people you're not what you were. So you, you can't say one thing here and meanwhile you're still sticking to whatever the, the previous behaviour have been here. And, and the second is how little people are going to notice. You have to do very significant things. And this really does apply to corporates as, as well as uh, political parties. You have to do very significant things to ensure that people actually notice that you're changing or you're, annou- or you're making announcements that really are likely to get through. And even if, you're, even if your focus is on you know, businesses or specific stakeholders like the scientific community, even there, you have to do some very significant things in the world of comms in order to make sure that your message lands. And you have to keep doing it over a long period of time. Let me tell you one story um, that, that goes back to my experience in the party, and it, it's, it's pretty telling. So I was the chief executive. We had a very uh, successful Conservative Party conference, made some big announcements, attracted quite a lot of positive coverage. I then did a focus group two days later. I think it was above a pub in Luton. And our first question was, have you noticed anything about politics over the last couple of weeks, including not just the Conservative Party conference, but it would have included Labour's conference? Blank faces. No one had noticed a single thing that had happened. We then asked if they could name any members of the shadow cabinet. It's true that they could all name the leader, but they could not name another single member of the shadow cabinet. And what that says to you is how much you need to do over a very long period of time in order to get the attention of anybody. Um, And sometimes, and this is true, again, for parties as well as for uh, companies and organisations, sometimes have a habit of, well, we've launched this initiative. We sent out the press release. We've put some stuff out on social media. We've got some LinkedIn interviews on it. Uh, So that's that done, isn't it? Well, yes, but if they haven't noticed... You haven't really done it for long enough or well enough to get their attention. And that's why it's very easy that companies will just tick a box. We've we've launched this initiative. Thank you very much. We're done. Now move on to the next thing. Ooh, hang on. Did anybody notice? Has anybody actually seen what you uh what you you've done and what you've said? And if, if they have, is are the right people that noticed? And what is that what has the impact been on your kind of wider reputation? So often we're looking inwards and we look at the outputs rather than the outcomes and we're not scratching the itch in the in the audience that needs to, you know, have uh, have that itch uh, satisfied. And it's like, oh, well, bravo, we've done well. We've got, you know, done all this effort, worked for months on this and boom, there was a flash for one day and the world moves on. It's that consistency, the continuity of messages. It's the reinforcement. It's the, it's the... It's the getting almost getting bored of it inside, and and that's the point at which outside they're actually finally getting it. Yes. But I would like to take you to a moment. We spoke about this previously. There are some speeches which become 
let's say iconic sometimes people remember a quote they don't remember what the context was there is one particular line which has forever stuck with me and um it was you know uh, from uh, from the conservative party during conference uh the very short sharp statement the nasty party um, it had a wide context. It has been since misquoted, and it's actually been um, uh, recontextualized time after time after time. You've got a bit of background on this one. Yeah, well, I was involved in, in that um, uh, speech. But it's actually delivered by the party chairman. It's quite unusual for a, a, any um, government minister or shadow minister, never mind the person who's in charge, notionally in charge of the party, to deliver a message that says we're not really much liked. You know, what they say about us, they call us the nasty party. But the truth is that is what people thought. I mean, that was the reality, that people did say that. That's exactly the words. There was just something slightly mm, unpleasant um, about what they thought about the Conservative Party. And, and actually, sometimes, and you do see companies doing this from time to time. It's a pretty brave CEO to say it. But sometimes you just acknowledge your failures uh, and to say we've... We just haven't, it may not be true. You may not believe it's true, but if the public believes it, you better do something about it. And recognising that problem is the first and most important step. And to come back to you know, the role of corporates, where they have had uh, problems, the first thing they have to do is recognise that problem and recognise the scale of the problem and therefore the scale of what they are, need to do in order to kind of put that right. Um, and so whether that's a, a kind of, data loss, a you know, cyber security issue, or whether it's a failure and they're delivering their services in some way that might affect the public. You know, you have to recognise that these are probably the things that actually the public might notice. They might not notice everything else you've done for years and years, but they're going to notice that. And therefore, that's the thing that you have to really focus on. And it did galvanise, that speech was, it did have a galvanising effect. It kind of, in effect, summed up the scale of what needs to be done, therefore, did lay the found, found uh, the groundwork for and the foundations for what you know David Cameron, when he became Conservative Party leader, for some of the things he did to demonstrate that the party wasn't what it what what it had been. Um, but again, there was a lot. Of, believe me, there's a lot of resistance in you know amongst Conservative MPs who couldn't believe that the party chairman um, had actually delivered that speech and, and that that line, but actually. And it comes back to my point that you do actually need to bring those people on board. So actually, you have to show them that, that this is actually what people say. You can show them some quotes of what they say. You can show them focus groups. You can share that research. And it's most of them probably understood if the Conservative parties were to, were to, were to have a hope of winning again at that point, this is 20 years ago, then they would have to make some significant changes. And some of those changes would be things that they might not enjoy doing. You know, I remember, for example... Uh, the minimum wage, some legislation around um, um, equal rights for gay people. You know, th these are things that for some conservatives were just anathema. They didn't want to do those things. But hey, guess what? You need If you wanted to have a serious chance, you did need to make some significant changes in those areas. Or you could just forever be in opposition. You know, kind of it's your choice. What I find fascinating about that is it effectively... It was a very short, sharp shock. It created a line in the sands. It enabled the organization to move forward. And it was that recognition that came from it. Um, 
the, another quote that really stands out as how to do the complete opposite of the effect of what that did was when, uh, let's say, Mr. Ratner made his statement about his organization berating his own products. It was, I don't know the intent, you know, I've read many times what has been said about it, but it was like, yeah, this isn't great merchandise. But effectively, there was no strategy to it. It was just an off-the-cuff. It wasn't planned. And that's where you see the decided difference between throwing something out there and seeing if it sticks or doing the research, really looking at what the market is saying and then trying to go, okay, well, what are we going to actually do about this? Um, mm. If we may, just moving on from that, market intelligence, knowing what people are saying, moving into this next phase of, of, of your life. Um, uh, we'll talk again, we'll talk specifically about the media scanning shortly, but, but Penta is an organization for anyone who doesn't know. Could you just give us the brief, almost elevator pitch, and your role as the uh, managing director dealing with that public affairs side? Yeah, Pinterest, I mean, it's a new organization. It's put to, brought together seven uh, different uh, companies across uh, the globe. And I guess our focus is is on the, the centrality and importance of stakeholders. So whether they be politicians uh, or your business partners or the consumers, is putting those people, or investors, put, putting those people at the heart of your decision making. So that rather than judging success on, for example, how many press releases you sent out, how many meetings you have with politicians, I'm trying to understand that actually your job is to ensure that you are you understand critically what stakeholders think of you and then designing what you are how how you are communicating and what you communicate to those people in order to provide them with the reassurance they might need or the messages that you want to deliver to ensure that those that if for example if you do have a a reputation or a political or regulatory challenge that actually the group of stakeholders that have a decision about an influence on that um are actually understand um about your organization and what you're trying to do and if you don't do that if you don't have that approach one of my uh problems with a lot of what i see in both public affairs but also wider comms is too often the measure of success is things that i don't believe are are valid and let me just illustrate one point so every if you're the chief executive of a you know, actually big or large organization almost everybody else that comes into your room brings data um so you you might have a bunch of call centers the people who run the call centers will explain to you how you know the data the amount of response time data if you've got manufacturing plants you'll have people that come and report to you about the success or, or otherwise of different manufacturing outlets likewise marketing they'll come and say if you invest x in our marketing you will deliver y we have or will deliver y results and, and i've often felt that communications folk other people that come in with a book of cuttings or a you know an anecdote about well we met this minister or this MP and it doesn't it doesn't rack up and so our view is that you absolutely have to understand what your reputation is where you stand what people know you for where they have concerns and actually to try and measure if you're trying to address those things to try trying to have a way of measuring whether what you are doing is actually landing with those different stakeholders. And that seems to be to be the, the if you can't get that right, then how do you how do you ever justify 
the client spending money on you, or indeed the client, the client, if they're the head of corporate affairs, the head of comms, actually justifying their budget to those above them. It's often said that um, you know uh, uh, conferences with with uh, different communication professionals and and uh, public affairs professionals. It's you know we're we're not only desperate for the seat at the table, but we want to be heard. We want to be validated in a greater way. We are more strategic than tactical, but we're not being perceived in this way yet. Time after time, there is the lack of this, you know, robust evidence that the other departments can bring. And with every communication uh, marketer, with every public affairs person I've ever worked with, they're, they're truly great thinkers, but it's the evidence piece that lacks. So when it comes to measurement what what is the way that we really need to rethink this space because clearly if we're feeling that there isn't the power or being listened to in the right way or when it comes to that first round of cuts when you know the industry ebbs and flows which is the department which gets the first automatic cut generally the communications bit so so where do we need to reposition let's say and I think that's that's right. And one of the reasons for that is because a lot of businesses see um, public affairs in particular, but certainly lots of communications as a cost to the business. Sometimes it's the cost of doing business. And I, I think about it differently. I think you have to position what you do uh, as being delivering benefits to the bottom line. And so, so it isn't just a sort of nice to have, but what you are doing is improving the reputation of your brand um, and the standing of the chief executive and others in to the in to the outside world, which did and it has to, it has to deliver commercial gains. It has to be a benefit to the wider business because, as you say, otherwise it's easy to reduce. Uh, well, if it's not having that benefit, it's just a nice to have. We can easily just cut that. And I think that's one of the reasons why having some form of uh, measurement, as, as I said, look. Penta has an insight team. About a third of the people that work for us uh, are kind of data technologists and work on our insights. Um, and we have a, a platform that actually measures um, companies' reputation. And you can, and actually in comparison to others, so you can see not just where you stand, but where your competitors stand. And critically, you can also uh, measure the success or otherwise of campaigns that you are running. And one of the things that, and of course, that, that can make some people uncomfortable that they may be perfectly happy um, describing how successful it's been um, to um, you know, the chief executive finance director. But, but actually, when you have to measure it and you have to come with a figure that says, look, we invested so many hundreds of thousands of millions in this particular communications campaign, and here's the results, you have to be strong enough to acknowledge that not everything is going to go well. I mean, it's always very nice if the results are brilliant and your reputation has moved upwards or that, you know, a particular uh, theme that you want to focus on. And let's say you want to be known for, you know, as it happens, you want to be known for AI and maybe your competitors are stronger players there. Um, well, OK, you start doing whatever the kind of creative things you want to do. But if at the end of the year you, your rating hasn't improved, then that says you've got to go try harder. And for some people, that can be very... No, I've worked in-house um, and I actually, I mean, the irony is I commissioned when I worked in-house 
what was one of the companies, used to be called Alva, one of the companies that uh, Penta has now bought to do this work for me when I was there, precisely because I wanted to have the evidence to go to the MD of the UK business and say, we've done all these things and look what the impact is going to be. But not, I can, look, and I do understand not everybody <laughs> is confident enough to have their, have the, uh, the hutchpa, if you like, uh, to do that, but, uh, but realizing that it might not, it might not be positive. Um, and so another example is when we, uh, it's when I was working in-house, if we were launching an initiative, to come back to your point about Joe Ratner, when we were launching an initiative, uh, uh, where possible, if it was something of significance, I would go and get it tested. So whether that was um, uh, quantitative polling or focus groups, I would actually go and test what we're going to do. And there were a number of occasions where I had to change what, fundamentally change what we we're going to do. Because it seemed to me, I believed the campaign we were designing was going to work, turned out that the target, the stakeholders, if you like, which in that case were consumers, didn't like it. Sorry, but you've got to change. And you, because otherwise, it's just your instinct. And that does then come back to this whole problem of um, confirmation bias. You believe something because you become, you become more and more committed to it. Someone's pitched you a brilliant idea, whether a member of your team or your agency. Yeah, but you're still going to validate. Does it actually work with the outside world? But that's why I believe it's so important that when you've done something over a sustained period of time, has it? can you actually measure whether it's had any impact on you? COVID was a really interesting period of time. And for many organisations, a lot of work dried up. It was a challenging time and it was a case of looking for other avenues. One of the areas that was um, up for grabs in, in many markets were communicate, external communication audits. And it's a space which, you know, uh, I, I spent a long time in for that, for that period, along with the regular work. And what I found fascinating was if a chief exec or the board brought us in to evaluate the organization's communication performance across, you know, digital platforms, materials, um, stakeholder, um, partners, uh, general audience, etc., um, the internal communication team at a number of organizations were very resistant to the report or wanted to dismiss it or wanted to say, well, we'll take this and we'll do something with it. Yet when it was the head of communications who brought this in, the adoption of the, you know, reporting side was far warmer and it was less of a challenge. And one of the things that was important during that period was to make it clear this isn't to, you know, berate anyone. The purpose of this is to really benchmark and see where there are opportunities and, and highlight that blindness that every organization has had traditionally and still does to what audiences actually want. So from that period during COVID, I, I've seen a change in how many smarter organizations are now continuing to keep that in place. Uh, with the tools that come from AI, what have you seen in terms of streamlining it? It was a very manual process, even just a few years ago. Where are we going and how do you believe technology can really help us become better practitioners? I mean, the first thing to say is, is you're right. I think um, re reputation 
is more important than ever for organizations. And I think it's much more on CEO's radar than it might have been 10, 20, 30 years ago, where, of course, they understood that it's important not to have scandals that damage your reputation, but doing something to proactively enhance it um, was, I think, is now much more on their uh, radar because everybody's aware of some of the missteps that organizations have taken. And it is very noticeable that though there were a number of companies during COVID that kind of stepped up. They decided, I remember Dyson did some interesting things and BAE, a number of organizations did some things that were not that weren't their day job, but they decided actually we need to play a part in helping the country get past this uh, the, 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 this COVID and the pandemic. What is it we can do? Um, and I think that was much to their uh, credit. Um, and But what it did do is it also highlighted um, those organisations that weren't really able to, to do that sort of thing. They weren't flexible enough to say, well, actually, we need, we need to play our part. Um, and, and because there wasn't much coverage of other issues, that became the dominating issue. Um, them issuing you know, updates on their financial uh, position or new product launches just all just, just disappeared. Um, and so actually they had to recognize that really if they weren't talk, if they weren't in some ways talking about COVID, it really was pretty much a waste of time talking about other things. As regards where AI has made a difference, I'm going to have a kind of word of warning in that I'm sure everybody's kind of used chat GPT and found you can enter something and, and then it turns out that some of the information that's presented to you is not actually accurate. Uh, because after all, it does just drag things from the internet. And as we know, the internet is also full of um, inaccuracies and fake news. So, but with that caveat, I, so I do think you need humans still to look at uh, what the AI systems are producing. And the one, for example, it, we're not alone, um, but I happen to think it, you know, ours, ours is it's a number of very strong features. Um, the, the AI system that we use essentially sucks in everything from the internet, from parliamentary debates to Twitter to media, and then it has a way of evaluating whether it reflects well or poorly on your business. Um, and then that turns it into a, a score. And that is just impossible to do manually. I mean, how do you rate the FT uh, front page piece about your organization versus uh, manually? Uh, versus, I don't know, a man is sitting in his underpants with three followers tweeting about you. How? Do, well, our system has a way of doing that. So AI does bring advantages. I do think it still think it's important that you have human um, uh, oversight to ensure that, for example, sarcasm is is not. It, AI is quite difficult <laughs> difficulties in interpreting sarcasm. Um, but I, but but with that small caveat, I do think it's it's important. And of course, it's not a it's not a complete solution. It is providing you with information that allows you to make better judgments. So you are still dependent on you bringing your experience, your understanding of your organization and the outside world of what is and isn't possible and what you want to achieve. So that's critically important that, that, that there's still those individuals making those, whether those decisions, whether they're working agencies or in-house, but what you're giving them is this extra tool that allows them to, to understand, actually do have a kind of proper sense of what the outside world thinks, um, and then react accordingly. And as you said, you can then benchmark 
is what you're doing delivering any changes over time? So even if you think, if you have some reservations about how the system works, you can at least always be sure that it's going to deliver you the same, you know, using the same metrics and the same techniques, it's going to deliver you the same results. So you are, you are actually benchmarking um, using the, the, the same publications and the, 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 the same view of the outside world. And so, but, but I do think that having that additional information uh, on a consistent basis is incredibly important because it does give you that tool. And also, to be honest, it gives you more confidence. Let's say you're going to go to your CEO and you say, we have to take some drastic action on this issue. They will ask you, well, based on your judgment, why do you think that? And if one of the things you can bring is additional data to that conversation, it means that it it's, there may be other voices in the room. So it allows you to have at least some data to say, well, if you look at this, that's why that's one of the reasons why I've made that judgment call. I've got chutzpah as much as anyone else, but sometimes evidencing hunches is is difficult. And would it be reasonable when you've got other people at the table who have facts and data and information say, because I feel it in my bones or the soup said so, um, you know, I'm very realistic having, you know, started my world in the world of IT because my parents told me I had to and they were right. Um, I, I've seen how technology has changed and evolved. And one of the things that I'm very excited about is how any tool can be used for good, how any tool can be used to support good decisions by people. And it's as soon as you let the technology take over and not have that human reasoning and balance it with that sense in your bones, because it has to be a balance, you then get to that point of making better decisions, still being prepared to fail, because, you know, we have to. Yeah, I mean, I think two two points. The first is we've had examples where um, we've identified um, and ordered the three or four issues that we believe that um, our clients should focus on. And in doing so, we then present the data to, to say what they're doing, what their competitors are doing, and to justify it. And what that has done is that enabled, in some cases, the director of communications to then go into board meetings and make that case and then there are other people around that table who had contrary views. Well, suddenly you've got something that makes them think, well, I've got a view, but my view is just based on a hunch. This guy, woman, has got a view based on actual uh, data and evidence. So it does strengthen that. The other thing that the our system does, which I'm, I'm kind of fascinated in, is that you know, you'll be aware that lots of uh, campaign groups um, will start an issue... Um, and it might start quite small, um, and it might be directed at a company or industry, um, but it can grow. And so one of the things that our system can pick up is where these kind of issues that might actually have a, a bigger impact in the longer term, where they are building momentum. So it might be actually a small thing to start with. It's almost not on your radar at all, but there have been a number of occasions where we've gone to a client and said, look, there's a there's an issue about this um I can't tell which ones they are, but this particular topic, and it does seem to be gaining momentum. You might have seen that one piece in a newspaper, but what you haven't seen is under the surface, these three campaign groups are having, you know, are really picking up some traction. They're, they're doing things that are probably not very visible to, to you. Some things in Parliament, some things on social media, 
but it looks to us as if this is gaining momentum. And so again, it's putting that, put it, for example, putting that issue on someone's radar that they may not have otherwise picked up until much further down the line when actually addressing it. Might, it might be possible to address it now, head it off at the pass, or at least be the first company to be conscious of it amongst your competitors so that you're prepared when that comes towards you and you have to make a decision about what you're going to do about it and whether you're just going to react or whether there's kind of proactive steps you can take. That reminds me of a previous episode that we did quite a while ago. And it was, we, we touched on the point that if you see a trending topic in a newspaper, it's already yesterday's topic. It's that what's bubbling under the under the you know surface what is that thing that's around the corner and what are those signals that mm. maybe aren't visible because there's a tiny signal here or a tiny signal there but using the technology to aid our search for those tiny signals to then create or see a pattern and inform those future uh, decisions yeah, no, exactly. We, uh, we, you know, we have a, a, a sort of saying with our clients: no, no faster, act faster. If you don't, if you're unaware of what's coming, um, and it can be positive as well. So this isn't just negative stories heading your way. Mm-hmm. It could be there. There's a positive story. I mean, you, chat, chat, chat GPT AI, for example, is a classic example itself of an issue that has been on the radar. But but uh, were companies really prepared for it? Were they you know were they actually prepared to well, what are we doing? How do we protect data? Do we use AI at all? Well, most organizations do. And so actually, I think some of those are the kind of early conversations. And so some of it is about preparation to ensure that you're 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 aware of what's coming down the line and it might or might not be an issue. Um, and some of it is to allow you to take those kind of proactive steps to say, well, look, we should get ahead of our competitors. There's a number of things we can do which will position us well for the future, uh, whether it's an opportunity or a threat. I'm really intrigued about this topic, as people will know if they've listened to previous or watched previous episodes. I, you know, have that tech background. So that that crossover between tech, communication, human behavior, it's just all it's all fascinating. I think that people in the space where we are at the moment, the more um, the more knowledge that they can gain about the analytical side of AI rather than the generative side, which is something that's very different. People get very excited about mid-journey and chat GPT for creation, but the an- analytics side is is truly, truly fascinating. And I'm, I'm uh, excited about pa- platforms such as yours. Um, mm. Time is, is against us, unfortunately. And I'm, I'd like to go back to the beginning when we were talking about how you know we consume news and and stories and get educated about things that has changed. Uh, you mentioned that um, you do consume podcasts that go in depth on certain topics. Are there any that you um, uh, have to hand that is is a regular listen, or is it by the guest who appears on various podcasts? They go actually, I'll. I'll hop between different ones. Which what's your focus with podcasting? I'll put aside the football podcasts that I follow just as a starter. But there are there are lots, and there are some I don't I don't. I mean, one my one observation was I think slightly regrettable is how many men there are who are podcasters and how few women. Um, and um, I think that is a is a particular challenge. But there are three that I would say I listen to 
almost all the time. Um, the, the first is um, actually a friend of mine called Rachel Wolf and Sir John Curtis produced this podcast called Trendy, which is actually about data um, and research into different issues. They had one about uh, fertility rates um, in the UK, but actually reflected on issues around the world. That that, that was last uh, last week. So I think that the Trendy podcast, which I think is on the Tortoise platform, I think that's excellent. Um, the, the second um, is... Um, the Ed Balls and George Osborne uh, podcast called Political Currency. It did actually start quite poorly. I think they talked about themselves too much, but they had a brilliant episode just around Christmas time, giving a kind of inside story of the formation of the coalition. I thought that was absolutely um, hugely insightful. And so I do think that they, the knowledge they bring, particularly around subjects like... um, uh, the budget, the preparation for that. I think that is that's interesting. And then the the, the last one, in in part again because I'm a great admirer of um, a couple of the people who are on it, is the um, How to Win Election podcast with Danny Finkelstein, um, uh, Peter Mandelson, um, and Polly McKenzie. Uh, and Danny Finkelstein is is one of the kind of I've actually worked with him. He actually was the chair of chairman. Policy exchange when I was working at that think tank, um, I've admired his his writing both in the Times and, and uh, books for for years. But I think they bring uh, uh, they they don't although they obviously are all there notionally representing a kind of political opinion really more than a, a party. They both you know, they both have all worked for different parties. I th- I think it's I think what they do is that they're not they are not hugely partisan. They're just as able to criticise, in Danny's case, the Conservative Party, which obviously he's worked for in the past, as they are to criticise the opposition. And a lot of other podcasts, I feel people are, are kind of stuck in their position. You know, They're not really open to change or persuasion, whereas I think the combination of those three um, is very good and also very entertaining. Um, some pod, You don't really want to sit there being bored um, and I don't think you can ever be bored on that podcast. So those three are the ones I'd, I'd recommend. I am so thankful on behalf of all of our listeners and viewers today. So thankful for you taking the time to um, to engage with us uh, on this, Mark. Um, if people wanted to find out more information about Penta, how could they do that? Uh, they could uh, contact us. Our website is pentagroup.co um, and um, they'll find my biography there if they want to drop me a line that you can do it directly there um and um i think that details in nature of our our services and and as i said uh, you know we have two uh, aspects of what we do one strategy which is public affairs corporate comms and the like and then insight which actually is a huge huge part of our our business and so um be very happy to if anyone wants to contact me very happy to to talk to them about what we might be able to do to help them Thank you so much, Mark, for this. And thank you for listening. You'll find this episode on the PRCA's YouTube channel and on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, literally everywhere. Just search PRCA Fuse and I promise you will find this. Do share this with friends and colleagues. Uh, And there are many interesting episodes where we've got incredible guests who have been interviewed by Farzana Badwell and myself. If you do like what you hear, please do share this so that we can grow our community. And I and many others are so thankful for every guest that takes the time 
to uh, participate in these. We publish these every two weeks, so please do stay tuned as we have some inspiring stories in the pipeline.